It's Monday, March the 8th, 2021. More than 300 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccination story as it happens, from the creation of new vaccines to how they impact public health, and hopefully one day help get things back to normal. We'll look at how vaccines are made, the challenges of distributing them, and the impact of all of that on public health and global geopolitics. Today, we're looking at clinical trials, why we do them, the data we get from them, and why the results can be so politically charged. Hi, Natasha. A new vaccine has been approved this week from Johnson & Johnson. It's all looking very good, isn't it? It's very good. And also good results from the Indian vaccine, Covaxin, as well. Fantastic. We'll be talking about all of that soon. Um, In a moment, we're going to hear from Andrew Catchpole, a virologist who's running the first ever human challenge trials. That's intentionally exposing people to COVID-19. And joining us for our discussions this week is Slavea Chankova. She's the healthcare correspondent at The Economist. Hi, Slavea. Hello, Alok. Hi, Natasha. Slavia, you're an expert in this. Uh, What do you think is the most important thing people need to keep in mind when thinking about clinical trials? So the key thing about a clinical trial is that it tells us what happens on average to a vaccinated person who is exposed to the virus versus what would happen to them without the vaccine. So what are the chances that the person becomes infected, that is, catches the virus, or becomes ill, has some symptoms of the disease, or becomes very ill and has to be admitted to hospital. So vaccines affect all of these outcomes, and clinical trials can measure any one of them. And Natasha, what is a clinical trial? A clinical trial is where you take a group of patients and you split them randomly into two, and you give one group the treatment, um, one group without the treatment, but they think they're getting the treatment, they just don't know, And then you measure the outcome. And it is an incredibly powerful tool that we have to figure out whether or not medicines work. Uh, Without this tool, we're just licking our finger and putting it in the wind. Thank you both. We'll talk about how to turn trial data into health policy a bit later. Clinical trials are the gold standard for identifying how well new medicines work. They've been crucial in the search for good COVID-19 vaccines. They help to sort out effectiveness, dosing, and of course, safety. To be approved by a stringent regulator, a new vaccine has to go through three phases of clinical trials. So far, four vaccines have managed to do this. Phases one and two of a clinical trial typically test for safety and whether or not it actually works in the body. During phase three, a much larger group of people are either given a vaccine or a placebo. The idea is to determine the vaccine's efficacy and to weed out any rare side effects. Now, you need volunteers for this. But given that the trials are experiments, there is an element of risk. 
So who would actually sign up for it and why? Well, it, it was partly selfless, wanting to help. I, I trained as a scientist, so I kind of wanted to help the scientific process to find a way out of the pandemic. That mellifluous voice is Jason Palmer. He hosts our sister daily podcast, The Intelligence. But I'd be lying if I didn't point out part of it was selfish, that maybe I would get a, a dose of the good stuff. So which trial were you involved in? So I'm part of the Johnson & Johnson trial in the UK, their partnership with Janssen Pharmaceuticals. They've done a one-shot trial in America, and in Britain they're doing a, a two-shot trial where they're separated by almost two months. So tell us what happened when you signed out. Well, what, what happens on the day you go in? Well, first I got an email from them and then a phone call from them and a kind of number of questions to see if I was eligible and they established that I was. And so on the appointed day, I went to St. Thomas's Hospital in central London. Hi, I'm here for the um, Janssen vaccine trial. Vaccine trial? Yes. I was asked at the door to sanitize my hands. I asked where the trial was. They sent me up to the wing where clinical research is done. North Wing, Thank you. I took the lift up there. Came to some doors that keep people out of clinical trials and, and rang the bell so I could find out where I was going. Hi. I'm here for the, the Janssen trial. Then met with a receptionist who started what would be a, a long list of questions. No. The household members, how to confirm diagnosis? No. Is currently waiting for a COVID-19 test result. No. Just establishing whether or not I had been exposed to COVID-19 or whether I was at, at risk of having been exposed to COVID-19. Nope, all clear. Went along to the labs where they do the clinical trials, was again asked a series of questions. I mean, ultimately, it was a really quite a lot of questions just to establish that I wasn't in danger in some way, but also suited to the trial. So we'll do blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen, temperature, height and weight, and a blood test. Okay. Get you randomized to see which vaccination you receive. And then, get and then I, I kind of got a once over. They took some blood, they took my height and weight, and then there was a, a great deal of waiting while they basically assigned me to either the control group or the vaccine group, which no one I dealt with actually knew about. They basically take my folder off to the people who have the vaccines in the deep freeze or the placebos in syringes, and I'm sort of assigned, I'm randomly drawn a lot to get one or the other, and then it's sort of, you know, pushed through a little window, and then the people I'm speaking to come over and, and give me the shot. Great, sir. Thank, Thank you very much. much. All the best. And then I hung around for Thanks. about 15, 20 minutes afterwards to make sure there were no adverse reactions, and they, they sent me on my way with a, an appointment for the second one. Yeah, cool. have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much. All the best. Bye. Now, when you were getting your injection, were you nervous? Mm. No. Tell me more. Why not? I think any fear that I might have had leading up to that point, I'd kind of, you know, put to bed. And, and at the end of the day, it is just an injection. It has a 50-50 shot of just being salt water, right? So it was a, you know, late-stage clinical trial. It was my belief that the safety of the thing had already been well-established, and it was much more about how good is it at, you know, preventing COVID-19. And so in, the, in that sense, it, it didn't feel like an inherent danger. So you had your shot, and then what happens next? Well, there was a follow-up call a month later, and then almost a month beyond that, I'm to go back and get a second one. The trial itself runs for, in fact, over two years. I have an app on my phone now that occasionally asks me to report if I've had any symptoms that might be associated with COVID-19. 
and they packed me off with a, a little goodie bag that has a, a pulse oximeter and a digital thermometer in it so that if I do have any symptoms, I can give them some, some numbers and send in a, a test directly to them as well as to the local health authority. So uh, in a sense, it's a long waiting game. They just want to know, I think, in the long run, do I get it or do I not? Just step back a second. Can you tell us what the stages of a clinical trial are and what stage were you involved in? So they start at technically phase zero, phase one, both of which are relatively small doses. They're just essentially to establish safety at the outset, to make sure that the drug, the treatment being tested doesn't have any harmful effects. By stage one, they're looking to find out, for instance, you know, that a drug targets the right body area, say, and it might be only a, a couple of dozen people. Phase two, more people, it becomes more a question of does this thing work? Uh, does this thing work badly when in combination with this drug or that drug? Um, phase two trials might be randomized. I am part of a phase three trial, which certainly is randomized, might be hundreds, perhaps thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people. And with the questions of safety, you know, largely behind them, it becomes much more of how good is this drug? And when it can be compared, how good is this drug compared to existing drugs for the same condition? And can I just be clear, everyone in that room, so you, the person who's injecting you with the um, the candidate vaccine or placebo, um, the people taking your notes, the people asking you questions, no one knows whether you got the real vaccine or just the placebo. Exactly. They don't want even the people who are, let's say, asking questions or, or handing out some uh, bottles of water, what have you, to know because there might be some subconscious clue that they give. They're like, ah, you got the good stuff or, or that, oh, huh, this is all really just kind of a sham. No, no one, no one should know. And so that way, when the numbers do come back, you know that it's just down to the effects of the vaccine itself rather than uh, any, anything in our heads. Jason was on the Johnson & Johnson trial, and that vaccine has just been approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. Natasha, how important is this vaccine in the world's rollout? Well, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a single-shot vaccine as approved in America, and in other countries it will be a single-shot vaccine. That's unbelievably useful. It's useful in countries where they don't have such good health record system and it's difficult to recall people. You just have to get people in once, give them the shot and they're done. Americans also very excited about this vaccine because they're also having difficulty getting everyone in to be vaccinated. And so this is seen as, as really streamlining and simplifying the whole process. You need half the amount of time to vaccinate people and there's less of a risk of people not turning up. I actually think that globally, that makes it a really good vaccine to use. What's interesting about Jason, of course, is that he's testing two shots of this vaccine. And of course, what Johnson & Johnson want to find out is whether a second shot gives you much better protection, which it probably will. I mean, if you look at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's very similar to the Astra vaccine. And so you would imagine that maybe you're going to get up to sort of 80, 85% higher, something like that when you have a second shot. Slavea, what are the outputs of a clinical trial? What numbers do you get? So the numbers you get are how many people in each of these two groups get infected. So in this case, how many would test positive for COVID-19 over a certain time period, which may be two weeks, three weeks, a month, or however long they're being followed up. And then the numbers in both groups are compared. So you may have... Uh, 
I'm just going to make up an example, 10,000 people in each group, placebo and vaccine. And you may see something like five infections in the vaccine group and, you know, 30, 40 or more in the placebo group. And then you, when you average the rates in both groups and you compare them, that's how you calculate the efficacy of the vaccine in the clinical trial. And that's where all these numbers come from that we see about the vaccines, that they're you know, 95% effective against uh, symptomatic COVID. Natasha, what do, in general terms, what do clinical trials not tell you? How do you make sure that you understand the results clearly? Trials are only going to tell you what you've designed them to tell you, and everything else is unanswered. And so let's look at these vaccine trials. One of the big questions that everyone wanted to know was, do they work or not? I mean, that's literally the question everyone wants to know the answer to. But one of the big questions they left unanswered was the extent to which, once you've been vaccinated, you can then spread this disease to other people, this sort of asymptomatic or the spread question. And so we just didn't know that when we came out of these trials. It was a big gap. And of course, we still don't know about durability because nobody's got the time to hang around waiting to find out when they stop working. So we've just started using them without actually having the trials finish and give us a, an understanding of how long uh, these vaccines work. So those are just two examples. Uh, and Slave, if you want to know about whether vaccines stop transmission or how well they work in different age groups. These are things you have to specifically design trials to do, right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, and the thing with trials is some of these outcomes require massive, massive samples of people. So deaths and hospitalizations are very rare events. So to measure them, you, you need literally millions of people followed up over a certain time period. And that's why in clinical trials, the primary outcome was just infection. They, of course, have records of deaths and hospitalizations, but the numbers are too small to draw statistically strong conclusions. And Natasha, what happens when trials go wrong? In trials, all sorts of things can go wrong. You may not get a clear-cut answer. You may get an answer you don't like or you don't want, or you may not get an answer at all. The vaccine from the French firm Sanofi was delayed last year because of problems with trials. And so at first we heard this vaccine is not stimulating a strong enough immune response. But then it was found out that volunteers had been given doses of the vaccine that were lower than what was intended, just due to a sort of miscalculation in the manufacturing. And so now Sanofi have had to go back, reformulate it and restart the trials all over again. And that's been a huge setback for this major firm. And it's delayed the arrival of a vaccine that could be important in Europe and globally. And then over in Australia, of course, there's the vaccine from the firm CSL. They had to abandon that one entirely. It was found during trials that volunteers were testing positive for HIV, even though they were not infected. And the vaccine had been designed with a sort of molecular clamp in it that was part of the HIV vaccine. And that was what was causing people to test positive for HIV. And the makers decided quite wisely that people would be quite reluctant to take a vaccine that had this odd side effect. And so they walked away from it. Natasha Slavea, thank you both very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you should subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. 
Now, there's a story I read this week which I really enjoyed. It was about the spread of underhand methods to jump the COVID-19 vaccine queue. People are trying all sorts of things, from the ethically dubious to the outright corrupt. Some people are paying to jump the queue, and there's, of course, a thriving black market. You can read that in The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the show notes for this episode. Clinical trials tell you what happens when groups of people take a drug or vaccine, but they're not good at telling you what happens to individuals. For that, you need something else, human challenge trials. Instead of vaccinating a lot of people and seeing how many get sick in the natural course of events, human challenge trials deliberately expose volunteers to a pathogen. It's a riskier way to do things, but some say the rewards could be huge. These types of trials can tell scientists exactly how a virus infects the body or precisely how well a vaccine is working. And these trials can also get results in only a matter of weeks. Clinical trials, on the other hand, usually take six months or more. In the UK, a human challenge trial will start soon for COVID-19. Because you directly give someone the virus, it means you know that person has come into contact with the disease and therefore... You can get data on testing vaccines or antivirals very, very quickly. Andrew Catchpole is the lead scientist on the world's first human challenge trial for COVID-19. The study will inoculate up to 90 volunteers between the ages of 18 and 30 years old at the Royal Free Hospital in London. Because, for example, what happens in other types of clinical trials is you vaccinate your participants, then you ask them to go about and live their normal life. And what you're relying on is that a small proportion of them will come into contact with the virus randomly in the community. And of course, that typically is a very small proportion of the people. So to get 100 people exposed to the disease, you may need to vaccinate maybe 10,000 people. Whereas in a challenge study, it is literally the 100 people you can directly vaccinate. Equally, because it's in very controlled conditions with much less variables, for example, we know how much virus we're giving them. We can monitor them before we've given them the virus. We know when we've given them the virus. All of that means the data quality is so great that you can get these very accurate results very quickly. Of course, on the flip side of that, you are introducing a potential danger to the people involved. So what kinds of safeguards are there in making sure that these sorts of trials go ahead? I mean, obviously, they can't just go ahead willy-nilly. No, that's right. So there's two main safeguards. One is in the actual study design itself, which I'll come on to in a minute. But very importantly, all of these trials done by any researchers have to be reviewed independently. So they have have an independent research ethics committee to look at these trials. And if it's involving an experimental drug, like a new vaccine or a new antiviral, also has to go through the regulators. So there are independent bodies which approve this research before you can conduct it. Built into these trials are a number of safety mechanisms as well. We only recruit onto these trials very healthy individuals with no known risk factors for the disease. That's a key indicator. Of course, we're giving the minimum amount of virus possible to cause the disease as well. And these viruses are what are called medical grade. I mean, they're, they're manufactured in a very similar process that vaccines are manufactured, which means before we can use them, they would also undergone 
a whole battery of safety tests to demonstrate that the only pathogen in there is indeed the pathogen which we're expecting to be present and at very controlled levels. During the time you're monitoring them in the following weeks, what will you be looking for in the, in the blood of these, of these people? So we're going to be monitoring how their immune response changes in response to receiving the virus and compare that to those who actually get infected and those who don't get infected. We're not actually expecting everybody to get infected. There's always some level of pre-existing immunity. When we move forward and then want to license new vaccines, a very key question is what does the immune response need to look like to actually be sure that that is able to protect the individual, so-called correlative protection, which means, for example, correlative protection may be a very specific antibody level. Do I need to get it to a unit of 40 before that's protective, or does it need to be a unit of 100, for example? So for SARS-CoV-2, this is not well understood at all. It is crucial with any infectious disease to understand what those correlative protection are, because once you can understand that, which challenge studies can really help facilitate that understanding, it will enable you to then change vaccines going forward and approve new vaccines very quickly. Natasha, what can we expect to learn from a human challenge trial? Human challenge trials have a really long history. Britain's been doing them since the 50s, trying to cure the common cold. And then they're done for influenza, dengue, typhoid, lots of nasty things, cholera. And they're just efficient. Uh, you get an answer quickly. Andrea answered one of these questions very well. He's talking about the correlates of protection and how the immune system looks when it's protected from COVID. What they're initially looking at is this minimum level of infection. And they'll be able to see in exquisite detail how the immune system responds from the first moment of infection and on towards the progress of the disease. And that's going to be very important in understanding the virus. Slavea, do these human challenge trials allow us to address any of the limitations we discussed earlier in clinical trials? So the thing with uh, human challenge trials is that they use healthy, usually younger people, so can't tell you what happens in older people because you're very intentionally infecting someone and you know that they may get uh, very sick and you know that uh, this is more likely in older people, so they're usually not included uh, in such trials. So that's uh, really the main drawback of human challenge trials in comparison to clinical trials uh, where you may have older participants because their chance of infection is just the chance of life, not you intentionally infecting them. Now it's time for an update on the world's best-performing vaccination programmes. James Fransham from The Economist data team has been monitoring the latest. And in a trial of our own, we've turned that data into sound. First to be sonified this week is America. 17% of its population have now received a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. And 9% have received a second dose. Next up is Chile. Its vaccination programme has raced out of the track since it began several weeks ago. 21% have now received a first shot, while 3% of the population have had a booster jab. 
Britain has now administered first doses to one third of its population, but just 2% have received a follow-up shot. In the UAE, 40% of the population have received a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and 24% have received a second dose. But at the top of our leader table this week is Israel. Though its vaccination programme has slowed in recent weeks, 57% of the population have now received a first dose and 43% have received a second dose. James, what can you tell us about the number of vaccine trials that are currently underway? We're using data from Airfinity, which is a life sciences data company, and that is tracking clinical trials for vaccines around the world. According to them, there are precisely uh, 259 clinical trials in various stages taking place at the moment. In total, they've enrolled nearly 1 million participants from over 100 different countries around the world. Most of these participants are actually just in kind of key countries. So the UK, the US, Brazil and South Africa are kind of four really key places where the trials have been active because obviously they've had significant outbreaks of COVID-19. So they're good places to do trials. And what's the sort of lay of the land in terms of what stage these various trials are at? I think where to begin is thinking back to last spring. So the studies began in March, April last year. And the AstraZeneca trial, for example, the phase two, three study began in, in late May. About 50 phase three trials are ongoing at the moment. They're involving about half a million people in total across 20 or so different vaccine manufacturers. And um, about 25 of those trials are due to complete this year. Now, what do we know about the data for the Russian and Chinese vaccines. There's been some cloud over just exactly how effective these vaccines are, where they can be used. They've, they've not been approved in Western countries. What do we know about their um, actual effectiveness? There are three Chinese vaccines and their efficacy ranges from 50 to 80%. But then I think that the more serious question is one of transparency and with that trust. And that data is based on figures that are reported in the media these numbers aren't published in either peer-reviewed journals or pre-publication um, uh, medical journals, for example. So just the kind of scrutiny that has been applied to these numbers isn't at the same level as those of the Western manufacturers. Natasha, is one reason that there's more uncertainty about the Russian and Chinese vaccines when you compare them with the Western manufacturers, that they haven't followed the sort of gold standard data publishing methods that we might expect? Yeah, that's exactly the problem. When pharma companies develop vaccines, they follow a very strict pathway that is set out by your regulators in many countries of the world. And that is just not the way in which these vaccines have been developed. 
you want to see that the pharma company defines its protocol for the trial. And then you want to have some kind of independent oversight. And then you publish your data, hopefully in a journal. And then you apply to a stringent regulator to have that data reviewed. And we have heard now that the EMA is considering, the EMA being the European's medicine regulator, they're now considering the the Russian vaccine, Sputnik. But considering a vaccine is obviously very different from giving it the thumbs up. So we just have to wait and see what these kind of various regulators actually decide about these vaccines. Slavea, what can governments and policymakers do with the emerging results from clinical trials? I mean, normally you'd wait for a long time and then decide what to do with these numbers, but we haven't got that time. So what can we do? So after a vaccine is uh, approved by regulators for widespread use, the tricky part is deciding what you do with, uh, especially when supplies are limited, uh, as they are at the moment, which populations do you start with? And at that point, you, you want to look at more granular data about how vaccine efficacy may vary by age groups. If you have several vaccines to choose from, and, and that is different between vaccines, you may want to look at how effective a first dose of a vaccine is in people who've had COVID, for example, versus people who have not. And we are seeing lots of European countries now actually starting to kind of give just one jab to people who've had COVID because uh, data is coming out now that they have a very strong immune response. So it's kind of like a booster shot for them. As these vaccines are used in the real world, there's going to be much more information about how effective they are and what kinds of protection they offer. But of course, policymakers can't wait for all of that to come in before they have to make their own decisions about, you know, the economics of it all. So Natasha, how do policymakers best use the clinical trial data that we have on hand already? Because we didn't know whether the vaccine prevented transmission, we had to design a vaccination strategy, which was just aimed at essentially targeting those who are most likely to get sick and die, and that's the elderly. If you kind of know how much you can reduce transmission, you may actually be able to say earlier on, you're going to vaccinate people who are moving the virus around. That's the working age population. The people who are elderly, they're right at the ends of the chains of transmission. But you know, people who are perhaps bus drivers or teachers or who work in pubs and bars, they may be responsible for spreading much more of this virus and causing more infections. But you can't actually say that the vaccine is going to prevent them from doing this until you've got that data. And so it becomes very difficult from a policy perspective to trade off those two groups. And so you just say, okay, we're just going to do by age and by risk factors as well, perhaps. And actually, even without transmission data so far in countries like Indonesia and in China, it seems, the working age population seems to be prioritised for vaccines. Yeah, in Indonesia, they have prioritised the working age population. There's a lot of debate about that. You know, to what extent is that an economic decision and to what extent is that based on the science? Now, the Indonesians said, look, there's not data for this particular vaccine in the elderly. And so we think we'll just give it to the working age people. But equally, they also said, look, we want to get our economy going again. So we're going to do our working age population. So which of those two factors? I know that political commentators and certainly our correspondent in the region thinks that there was a sort of a marked political dimension to that decision that kind of outweighed the 
you know, scientific justification, but it's an open debate. That's right. What Natasha said is very relevant because a vaccine that is highly effective in preventing transmission will be particularly useful for curbing the epidemic. According to one model by Imperial College uh, London, everything else being equal, if a a vaccine that blocks 40% of infections and therefore has a pretty big effect on transmission would have a similar impact on the number of COVID-19 deaths as a vaccine that blocks 80% of disease, but doesn't affect uh, transmission at all. That's an impressive number. But we don't know this data. We don't know these data yet. We have some data from Israel and here as well that the Pfizer vaccine is reducing infections, uh, even asymptomatic ones. So that naturally will reduce transmission. But we need more time to work out exactly by how much. What I've learned from this conversation is that clinical trials are the gold standard way of trying to understand how well vaccines work against SARS-CoV-2. But they're not going to be the be-all and end-all. There's going to be more clinical trials. There's going to be real-world data from uh, vaccinations that are given to people uh, across the uh, across the world. And all of that will help policymakers, uh, public health officials, to decide how best to deploy vaccines. And then scientists uh, will use that information to work out how to improve those vaccines in the future. Now, just before we go, Slavea and Natasha, is there anything else you spotted this week that people might have missed? My favourite uh, bit of the news was uh, celebrities getting vaccinated and, and how, how they use their own show business signature thing to promote the idea. Well, hey, it's me. I'm finally going to get my vaccine. I'm so excited. One of them was Dolly Parton. So I'm very happy that I'm going to get my Moderna shot today. She actually donated a million dollars to Vanderbilt University for research on the Moderna vaccine. So she was uh, super excited when she actually got that jab. And she modified one of her songs, uh, one of her most famous songs, uh, Jolene, Jolene, Jolene. It goes, vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. (laughs) Fantastic. It was so good. Yeah, she was awesome. Uh, Natasha, what would you like to tell everyone? Well, first of all, I wanted to ask whether either of you have had one of these nasal swab PCR tests. I haven't. Oh, no, I hear they're quite, I mean, you basically have to tear tear up or otherwise it's not done well. I I had to give one to my two-year-old daughter, but it wasn't really, I don't think I got deep enough for her to get her comfortable. So so basically, you feel exactly as squeamish about this as I do. So I was absolutely thrilled to hear that there's this Dutch guy who is actually has invented a new method and you step into an airlocked booth and you scream and he collects the particles and analyzes them and I just (laughs) after a year of lockdown and mayhem the idea of being able to go into a testing booth and then just letting rip just really appeals to me. I mean, I think that you could install these all over the cities, all over the world, and just let people scream. I mean, never mind the scientific benefits, surely. You are well ahead of me, Alok. (laughs) That is exactly what needs to happen. 
that could be an epidemiological surveillance tool. Absolutely, <laughs> they're even, all I'm over the place, and they, you know, just imagine. Just step, um, step in and scream. No, I am. Um, I I like that, and I've been doing that in my home office every day in, in the mornings. <laughs> That's how I wake up. Natasha Slavea, thank you both very much. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great fun as always. Thank you, Alok. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. Thanks to Daniel Lloyd-Evans for additional sound design. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week when we'll discuss the role vaccine passports will play in the coming months.